What's good, everyone? My name is Jacob Moses, community builder at Strong Towns, and in this episode, I'm taking over the Strong Towns podcast to interview Strong Towns president and founder Chuck Marone and discuss his newly released book, Strong Towns, a bottom-up revolution to rebuild American prosperity. Throughout the week, you've heard a few of my colleagues discuss their favorite chapters with Chuck. And now, in this episode, we're going to dive into a few of my favorites as well, including Chapter 7, titled Productive Places, and Chapter 8, titled Making Strong Investments. I love these chapters because, in usual Strong Towns fashion, they celebrate the small bets everyone, from citizens to leaders, professionals to neighbors, can make in their community. And how, as we repeat these small bets in neighborhoods all across the country, we'll not only discover residents more invested in their place, but more financially resilient communities as well. If you've already read the book, I hope this episode inspires you to consider the types of strong investments you can make in your own neighborhood. And if you haven't, we hope you enjoyed this sneak peek. And if you're intrigued, encourage you to purchase the book from any major book retailer near you. Enjoy. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Chuck, what's going on, friend? How are you today? Hey, man. Doing fantastic. Uh, it's gorgeous here in Minnesota, so uh, absolutely wonderful. How about you? I'm doing well. Doing well. Thank you. Congratulations. This week, your book came out, Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. How are you feeling? <laughs> it's sur- it's surreal. It's crazy. It really is crazy. And you know, you you've been involved in this thing for quite a while. I think last March, when I submitted it to the publisher, it seemed like a long way away. And you know, even before that, when we started talking about you know when I was writing it, it seemed like this would never come. And and now it's here, and it's kind of freaky, uh, but it's been very nice. So thank you, thank you That's so much. That's awesome, Chuck. And I know we're we're so excited as staff members at Strong Towns. I know all the wonderful folk that are members of the movement are excited as well. We got the Strong America tour going down. Um, I think we're knocking out week two or three at this point. A lot of great dates ahead. So, listeners, if you're vibing with the book and want to see Chuck actually perhaps come to your town and share this great Strong Towns message and how you can get involved to make your own place stronger, definitely be on the lookout for more tour dates. You can check it out at strongtowns.org slash events. And we'll make sure to include that in the show notes below the player. Well, and if you're in Louisiana and Texas, come and see both of us, right? That's right. That's right. We'll be coming <laughs> through the South. We're stopping in my hometown of Denton, Texas. A lot of great spots. It's going to be a good time. I think one of the cool things about the tour for, for me is that I get to spend this extended period of time with everybody on the team. So, hey, you might hear the train come by. It's one of the highlights of doing the podcast here is the the train comes by with the whistle. So. <laughs> well, cool you're not time. alone in that. I imagine the train in my downtown might be coming through as well. Oh, really? We'll be, we'll be alternating. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. So I get to spend a week in, I think in November with you, which is going to be really fun. I'm, That's right. I'm looking forward that, to it. Yeah. That week before Thanksgiving, get to kick it with the Strong Towns fam, and then kick it with the normal fam. It's going to be a yeah. good way to end the month. I was there in Texas in November giving a talk 
I like four or five years ago and it snowed. Really? For a Minnesotan, it was a dusting, right? Like it was kind of like we would just like take the broom and sweep it off. But it paralyzed, shut down and paralyzed everything. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we get we get that ice in North yeah. Texas. We right. we don't have that pretty snow where you're out making snow angels and yeah. playing fun games with your friends, but you're you're hunkered indoors, settling for frozen pizzas from Seven Eleven for a couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite the same attitude as Minnesota. But that's all right. Yeah. Well, Chuck, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I know we're we're airing this in a few different podcasts. We got the Strong Towns podcast, of course, but I'm also going to put this on my podcast. It's the little things. So we're going to be knocking out a few really great chapters in the book. We're going to discuss chapter seven, titled Productive Places, and chapter eight, Making Strong Investments. Two great, compelling chapters and ones that definitely line with the work that we discuss here um, on It's the Little Things podcast. So listeners, this will be a a very familiar message for you in regards to, you know, how we can invest on a neighborhood level, but also as anytime we have Chuck on the podcast, some much needed nuance and complexity um, to ensure we're really making sound choices whenever we talk about neighborhood investment. Chuck, I want to start off with talking about chapter seven, productive places, readers and listeners, anyone who follows the strong towns movement. This is a familiar phrase for them, you know, as a movement that focuses on financial resiliency. We want to make sure that we're building places that are productive, that are self-sustaining, that have, you know, more incomes and outcomes and can support themselves. I want to flash back to, I don't know at what point in, in life you were when you were cranking out this chapter, but why was this a core chapter to include in the book? Well, this was really, I think, the thing that as an engineer and as a planner, I w- had never been taught. This was essentially wisdom I had to unearth. And fortunately, I had people helping me with that. It wasn't me on my own. But this stuff that is basically very intuitive once you grasp it is stuff that you're not given in engineering school. You're not giving in planning school. It's not part of the, the practice or the, the conversation at all. So I got into Joe Minicozzi and introduced to him and I don't think I tell this story in the book, so maybe I can give you this. Joe and I uh, were invited to speak at a Congress for the New Urbanism session. And we were both given, I think we were given six minutes. It's like a weird time, but they're like, you got six minutes. I was, this was maybe like 2010, 2011, something like that. Joe gets up and he gives his talk. And his talk is all about revenue. Here's where cities are getting their revenues. Here's how you measure that. And, and he went through and he had this whole like shtick about revenue. And revenue was the thing I didn't, I knew nothing about. Like I was really struggling with this. I had done some research and I tried to figure it out, but I'm like, this seems just real like elusive to me. I, I don't know what I'm doing. He got done and he sat down and he was sitting next to me and I gave him a fist bump. And I'm like, dude, that that was amazing. That was amazing. And of course, you're on a panel with like six, seven other people. So everybody just gets up and does their quick thing and then you sit down. So Joe's was like six minutes. I got up then a couple of speakers later and I did mine. And at the time, this was not the curbside chat. This was just me like, here's, <laughs> here's this development I looked at and I'm an engineer. So here's the engineering. Exp- and I went through the expense side of it. Bam, 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 like, you know, 10 different case studies. And I'm like, you know, try, try to tie it all together. And then I sat down. 
And Joe turned to me and he's like, that was incredible. And he calls it our peanut butter and chocolate moment. You know, when we realized that like he was stuck in the part that I was like an expert in and, and I was stuck in the part that he was an expert in. And so from, from that moment on him and I just became best pals, you know, like, and it, it helps that we're really compatible. I mean, I, I, I love the guy, but professionally he brings this whole like completely different set of understandings that I had. And, and I was kind of complimentary of him in that way. And so sitting down with him and figuring this stuff out and getting to the core of it, it's been a huge revolution for my way of thinking. And, and you know, chapter seven tries to explain that to people so that uh, they can also share in what really ultimately is, you know, historic wisdom. This, this is stuff our ancestors totally grasped that we've just forgotten. And listeners, if you're unfamiliar with Joe Minicozzi and his firm, Urban3, I'll include a link to the show notes. This is a fantastic group out of Asheville, North Carolina, another tour date that we have coming up on the Strong America Tour. And as you've been reading the Strong Town site, you've likely seen these great uh, value per acre analysis. That is courtesy of the Urban 3 folk. So really great marriage between Strong Towns and Urban 3 that I know we're very thankful for, as are many of our members of the movement. Chuck, I want to have you dig deeper into you know, the lessons that our ancestors learned as they were attempting to create productive places. I know as we look at the modern development pattern, what many listeners of this podcast are observing in their own unique places, the modern development pattern, as we know, is lots of roads, big parking lots, big box stores. It looks like success on the surface, but when we really get down to the nitty gritty, we see that it's an incredibly risky and fragile approach to building places. How does what we're doing right now to build places contrast to what our ancestors did pre-World War II? And why is it so essential that we refer back to the latter as we try to start making more strong cities, towns, and neighborhoods? I think I realized that, and this came from Andres Duani in a talk he gave, I started to recognize and really understand that the people who built cities prior to the modern era were very poor people. And because they were very poor, they were constrained to have to build stuff that worked. They couldn't cover up for their mistakes with debt. They couldn't cover up for the mistakes by engineering more growth. They weren't going to be bailed out by someone else. They had to, sometimes in very harsh places and harsh conditions, live with their mistakes. And so that made them, in a sense, very conservative and risk averse. When I say that conservative, I mean conservative in like a Darwinian evolutionary sense, conservative. Darwin has said that evolution is a conservative process. It conserves the things that work and essentially experiments in modest ways off of like this sound base of what works. So traditional development patterns, in a sense, evolved to be exactly that. They conserved strategies that worked and they incrementally adapted off of that. So one of the earliest applications that I had of Joe Minicozzi's insights was in this building, and I can look across this, the, the yard for the rail yard here and see the Taco John's and the Old and Blighted block. And 
this has become kind of a famous strong town story for those that have been with us a long time. I've probably seen us refer to it many times. We had in the 1920s in my city, these three blocks that were built. They were the first increment of outward expansion in this area. And uh, what you got were little pop-up shacks. And historically, what we would see is that these little pop-up shacks over time would get torn down or redeveloped as the, the land underneath it became more valuable, as the place became more of a place, and there was more people and more energy, more life. And so you'd get second and third stories and the buildings become more intense. You know, it, 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 was a, it was a natural redevelopment cycle that people used in this pattern to renew and refresh and revive their places. When we built these in the 1920s, that's what the people at the time would have expected happened. The, these little pop-up shacks and ultimately they would get redeveloped and become more intense. We didn't do that. We had the Depression, we had World War II, then we skipped right over these places and we started building horizontal out on the edge, you know, subdivision, development, development, development. My city went in and they got this old blighted block torn down, one of the three. And they enticed the Taco John's franchise to come in. Now in Texas, you've got like Taco, I know you've got Taco Bell, but you also have like Taco Del Rey or Del something. What is it? What do you got down there? We got all the taco. We got Taco <laughs> Bell, Taco Bueno, I think yeah. Taco Del or Del Taco. Right. All the taco that looks just like Taco John's. Right. And but, that's a drive through that looks pretty with some nice landscaping. L- let me let me just be clear. On the outside, they look like Taco John's. On the inside, it's far inferior because Taco <laughs> John's has potato olays. Uh, you know, tater tots dipped in cheese. It, it, nah. is, you don't have that. I'm, I'm almost positive. Nah, um, we just got double deckers. Yeah. See, it's, it, you know, someday you're going to come here and we're going to go to Taco John's and you can experience authentic Mexican food in the Norwegian style. <laughs> only, only if we can go down the block and get a haircut at the blotted block that is actually more financially productive. That, that would be cool. If we can have cool. that agreement, we can make it happen. Well, that, <laughs> that's the insight, right? Is that you know you've got these two blocks, and I think the reason why this this example works so well is because it it plays with our perception. Um, we perceive the old blighted block as run down. We perceive the shiny new block as you know this reincarnation of something successful. And so you know our assumption is that the Taco John's is going to be worth more. And in fact, not only is it worth less than the old and blighted block, it's worth much less. And you know as you said. You can go there and get a, a flat top. You know, you can go get one of those old timey haircuts. You can go in that old and blighted block to the pawn shop or the army surplus store, or you know, buy your uh, your liquor in the uh, in the paper bag. <laughs> All that's available on that block. Um, you won't find the highest end, you know, places. But in terms of the revenue it's producing for the city, in terms of like the wealth it's creating for the community, it's it's not even close. It totally destroys the old blighted block. And we can even take this a step further, and you you do such a good job explaining this in chapter seven, is yes, we compare Taco John's to this old and blighted block. As you described, Chuck, the latter is more financially productive. It generates more tax revenue um, when you compare it to the liabilities. In addition, from your research of the business owners here, they have more full-time jobs. They employ more folk. They use local accountants, local printers. I can't recall the list exactly, but it's just this theme of 
not only are they generating more tax revenue for Brainerd, which is essential to your financial solvency, but these are overall just like better people that we want to yeah. have yeah. in our community and providing these necessary services. Well, think again of poor people building a place. So people coming out to, in our case, the wilderness of Minnesota, you know, the very uh, sparsely populated place in the middle of the f- Canadian forest coming down into, into Minnesota. In your place, a semi-desert, you know, environment in Denton on the outskirts of this growing Dallas or Fort Worth area, but still like a long ways away from that at that period of time. These, these were poor people who were basically trying to get a start. And if, if you're poor people trying to get a start, you don't create enterprises that essentially uh, suck wealth out of the community. You have to, as like a matter of discipline, create enterprises that recycle as much of that community's wealth as possible. You, you're in a sense creating the first iteration or the early iterations of an economic ecosystem that if it's successful, evolves and becomes even more internally powerful for you. You can still see after 90 years of this thing basically going the wrong direction, that that ecosystem fabric is not only really, really productive, but creates all these jobs, all these spinoff opportunities, just feeds our local economy in ways that that Taco John's, where they got great potato oles, is just never going to do. It's, it's never designed. It's not designed to do that. And Chuck, I know this is a very complex process. And I know, as we always say, as strong towns, you know, the best way to probe this uncertainty and complexity is incrementally and something that we continually advocate for as strong towns. But, you know, on the contrast, something so cool that you said in chapter seven, thinking about how these poor people, whenever they set up in Brainerd, set up these shacks, when they figured out what worked, guess what they did? Yeah. They just copied what knew what worked right. <laughs> and did it again and repeated the process. Right. And, 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 and you know this better than me, Chuck, but why we don't see that today, I'm uncertain. Maybe it's because we haven't acknowledged that the current development pattern doesn't work, so we keep repeating what we've always done. But you go back to that spooky wisdom. I mean, they did the best that they could with the resources that, that they had right. when they figured out what worked did it again. And that that's what made Brainerd. That's what made Denton in many cities before pre-World War II. This is that conservative process again, that, that process that conserves winning strategies and, and builds on them incrementally. So you, you certainly saw, you know, over the thousands of years of, of, of humans experimenting with building their habitat, you saw a lot of changes in development patterns. Earlier in the book, I talk about a, a trip I took to Pompeii and there's no one who's going to claim that Pompeii and Brainerd are the same city. I mean, they're very different. Yet, the essential pattern of it, the essential like DNA of it, are their derivations of each other. What we have built today, and I, I think this is critical for people to to grasp, what the cities that we build today are designed to solve a very narrow set of problems, largely problems of the Great Depression. How do we generate enough economic growth? to keep our economy from sliding back into depression. Layered on top of that like central problem, there, there are some other like modest things we were trying to fix. And, and we've added other ones in, the, you know, the whole idea of an ownership society. How do we, uh, you know, get people into homes? How do we create a middle class? Um, we, for a generation, 
uh, were very successful, like solving that limited set of problems. Um, the thing is, uh, the system we created, the, the, and you can think of it as Taco John's, or later in the chapter, we talk about some big box stores and malls and that kind of thing. You can think of it as that those things solve, you know, one very specific set of problems around growth, but they create all these other challenges that now we're not really able to adapt and address. And I think that's one of the things you said, the, the spooky wisdom. I, I think one of the things that we don't often appreciate is how over trial and error, over many thousands of years, humans had to harmonize all these different competing interests that they were trying to address, all these different competing struggles. And the spooky wisdom that emerges from that is not perfect in any way. I mean, it's not like you have a development pattern that you know creates tons of growth, is very safe and secure, is good for everybody, creates affordable housing, creates uh, you know lowers obesity, uh, helps everybody feel like they belong to a community. I mean, we can go through like the list of things. It did none of those perfectly, none of them. But what it did is it kind of tried to optimize all of them a little bit. There was an article I read once about um, the peacock. The peacock as a bird is a very strange bird, especially the male peacock, because the male peacock has this huge non-functional tail. It's an ornamentation. And if you think about it, essentially what the peacock is signaling to, to the female peacocks is that, look, I am so healthy. I'm so strong and healthy that I can afford to have this huge ornamental tail that, uh, that doesn't advantage me in any way, except just to demonstrate my prowess in a sense. The problem is if the tail gets too big, if it gets too out of whack, the bird becomes easy prey. So there's this fine line between the overly pretentious peacock and the, the far too modest and humble peacock that actually is like the optimum amount. And that was figured out in different environments, different climates, different food sources, different predatory environments, in many different places, in many different ways over, over hundreds, thousands of years. Once you recognize that process and how it works, not just for peacocks, but for, for bees and anthills and, and grizzly bear habitat and microbes, what you start to recognize is that humans are our species like the rest, and we build our habitat like the rest. And when you think about like a bee habitat, you wouldn't go in and say, well, these bees, uh, they just, they, they really like, they're not getting along with their mother-in-law and uh, things are really tough. And there's, there's a little bit too much, uh, you know, congestion in here. You know what we need? We need to turn this beehive into uh, some bee cul-de-sacs and uh, we'll put a bee storage <laughs> facility, you know, a honey storage facility over here. And we'll put a, you know, a, a, a freeway between the two. You start to recognize like bees wouldn't function in that, you know, they, they'd cease to become bees. And in many ways, uh, we've thrown away this wisdom and we've struggled to be human in this new environment. Chuck, that captures so well, you know, this really difficult relationship between human habitat, of course, acknowledging that we're building places for people and on an individual level, their goals, their needs, their preferences, their struggles greatly vary. There's not a top-down civil world solution that's going to address everyone simultaneously. But in the process, we also need to make sure that we're building, as the chapter suggests, 
productive places. So in chapter seven, you talk about, it's really simple math. Right now with our current development pattern, we have way more expenses than we have revenue. So we say, okay, if we just do the math, that means we need to decrease our expenses and increase our revenue. Maybe we need to just cut things out to make sure we're more financially solvent. But as you just described, Chuck, whenever we're dealing with human habitats, it's not that simple. Could you talk a little bit more about this relationship between actually building financially resilient places, but also ensuring that we're being empathetic of the people who actually make our places great? I have to confess and acknowledge that this is probably the the part where I'm uh, on the shakiest ground in the sense that when you go to engineering school, they they don't teach you empathy. Like it's not, <laughs> there's no course in that, you know, you are taught to look at the city in a sense as a machine, a machine of roads, a machine of pipes, a machine of sidewalks and, and, and pumps and meters and bridges and, you know, concrete and asphalt. And these mechanical systems you change and, and utilize and, you know, modify in whatever ways you need to get the outcomes you're after. And they're all mechanical outcomes. What's the traffic flow? Uh, what's the growth rate? How much land are we made available for development? You know, what's our gallons per minute? They're very like non-human metrics. Yeah. Stuff that looks good on paper. Yeah. But whenever actually in the neighborhoods, we don't really necessarily see it translating to exactly. better quality of life. Exactly. When you, when you go to planning school, there's a little bit more of the nuance in it but it still is very mechanical oriented. There is a sense that, you know, with the right zoning code, we can fix the world. And with the right comprehensive plan, we can factor it, you know, all these things and, and come up with the, the optimum solution. Mashing two things together. Let me give you the two. The, the first is that our cities are going to physically contract. Like there will be fewer roads, fewer pipes, fewer of, of the infrastructure, less of it than, than there is today. I think that's just a mathematical certainty. Could there be new technologies that come along? And I, I don't know. I mean, that seems crazy because we've been building roads very much like the Romans built roads. You know, I mean, it's not, it's not like an engineering, you're looking at computer science or some like fast changing profession. I mean, we literally build pipes the way the Romans built pipes. You know, gravity works the same now as it worked back then. So the idea is, you know, we're going to be shrinking. And so the question becomes, I think the other like mashup ideas, this is how do you do this in a way that includes people and doesn't leave people behind? Our history has been when we have a change or a transformation we go through, we find it very easy to make that change with wealthy people. Wealthy people is often leading it, and that's what we see in our big cities today, where the affluent are starting to now re-inhabit central cities, driving up the prices, uh, changing the demographics. We have, in modern times, more so than than in the past, but I think a little bit in the past as well, found places for the middle class. We call it today. They would maybe call it the merchant class back then, or you know this this broad group of people who are neither rich nor poor, but but kind of you know. Uh, exist somewhere in between. We found it a way to include them in it, but we've we found it very easy to make these transitions on the backs of the poor. 
in the highway building age, it was simple. We, when we were going to run a highway through the middle of, of the city, we just went and found the poorest neighborhoods. And if you're an engineer, there's a logic to that. Let's cut the engineers some slack. I mean, I think obviously there's a lot of, of racial components to some of this and there's a lot of, uh, you know, just flat out inequities, but let's try to be an engineer for a second. You've got a budget. You've got to make this work. You've got to run the highway through here. Here's the cheapest place to do it. And so even if you're not um, racist or not epathetic or, or, you know, what have you, there's a simple like hard, cold math that says, if we're going to do the, the most good for the most amount of people, here's where we run this highway. And of course, we, we know what happened. We, we destroyed a lot of communities. We destroyed a lot of people's lives. We dislocated lots of people. And, and what they had left as alternatives were, uh, were not good. I feel like our challenge now is to not only recognize that what we're trying to recreate is human habitat, not a tweaked machine. In understanding that, grasp that we need to very intentionally, with a lot of focus, find ways to include people in as we make this transition. And that is going to mean, and, and I'm, I'm going to say this very clearly, I, I say in other parts of the book too, our obsession with growth as the primary factor that, that after the Great Depression uh, obsession that really drove this whole development pattern. I don't think it's going to work to just take that same obsession and that same way of doing business and just like turn it to say, well, now we'll build mixed use neighborhoods or now we'll build the, we actually have to get back to the harmonizing of completing, competing objectives the way our ancestors, and I say that in the largest possible version of, of ancestors around the world did. And that means working incrementally in a way that doesn't push people out and also creates room for people to essentially double down on success in their own communities and, and participate in that success. Does that make sense? It does. And this is a fantastic transition into chapter eight of the book, Making Strong Investments. So Chuck, you just gave an excellent explanation of why our ancestors, you know, they were doing it right. Then so that this is a complex process. We're going to use the resources that we have to try to create a productive place. We're going to learn from our errors. We're going to celebrate our successes and repeat them throughout town compared to what we're doing with the modern development pattern where we're making huge bets Then, whenever we look at the bottom line aren't working out. They're making our cities less solvent and they're disrupting communities in the process. We've acknowledged this now as a strong town, as all the strong citizens listening to this podcast that want to embrace the strong towns movement and do what they can to make their own cities, towns, and neighborhoods stronger. What's next? We talk about investment. Chuck, throughout this process, running strong towns, all the communities you visited, what have you noticed is the traditional discussion that we see around making strong investments and how that contrasts to what you believe is truly a, a strong towns-minded investment in different neighborhoods? I think this is the place where I've made the most changes over the last decade. Because I started writing the blog that, that ultimately became Strong Towns very much in an engineer planner mindset. And when I first was invited to go speak in different places, 
it was really um, almost like a chicken little presentation. Like the sky is falling and, and understand this was 2010, you know, so we're a couple of years after the, the, the great recession had started. Cities were really in the depths at that point, 2010, 11, 12 was horrible for, for most cities. And so here's this guy coming around saying the sky is falling. And it was the value I was providing humanity at that point was just to explain why the sky is falling. Because so much of our response to the sky is falling is, well, let's go back and just do way more of what we were doing. I'll give you a prime example of this. Early in the Obama administration, uh, one of the things, and this is a bipartisan, this was a bipartisan undertaking, so let's, let's be clear about that, was to stimulate the economy by identifying shovel-ready projects and then allocating money to them with the, under the idea that if they're shovel-ready, we can get people to work quickly. We can get the money out there. We can get the job bid out. We can get the contract let, and we can get people out there on the ground working now today doing important projects. For me, this was like the worst possible thing we could do. It was, it was, I, I was just like, why, why are we doing this? Understand what a shovel-ready project is. A shovel-ready project is a project that essentially the bureaucracy creates. And I, I don't say that in a negative tone. It's the project that the engineers, the planners, the, the inside people, they put together. And sure, they work with committees and they work with public officials, but basically they're working through this process. They, they get to the end and they look at the project, they look at the costs, and they wind up saying, you know what? We, we just can't pull this one off. Like This is not a high enough priority for us to actually spend our own money on it. And nobody else is willing to fund it for us. So just set it off to the side. Like we're not going to do this one. So all of a sudden, we're in this, you know, bad period of time because we've overbuilt and overextended and overoptimized. And and uh, you know, our cities are are struggling under the weight of all these liabilities. So what do we do? We go take off the shelf the worst of our projects and fund those in mass everywhere, all at once. And that's what we did. That was what we did. And I felt like my role in, in those early days was to say, like, stop. We just need to stop. Like, I, I don't have the answer, but all the stuff we're doing is just taking us in, in the wrong direction. That was very dissatisfying to people because it wasn't enough. It was frustrating to me, too, because I was basically like saying, stop smoking, stop uh, doing drugs, stop eating sugar food. And people were saying, yeah, but what should we do? And I'm like, well, I don't know, but stop doing things that hurt yourself. You know, like just stop that. It took a long time to get to what I think is, you know, a proactive approach to, okay, once we stop and once we start moving in a different direction, what does that actually look like? And quite frankly, for the most part, it looks a lot like maintenance. It's, I think the unsexy part of it is that it looks a lot just like taking care of business. The fascinating thing is that when you ask people what their expectations are, they say, my expectation is I pay my taxes and the city maintains stuff. Um, when you ask the city, what, what's your expectation? The city officials will say, um, we want to maintain stuff first. To actually put that into action though, to actually make maintenance an obsession, something that you put as like the highest priority, something that you mobilize your, your 
not just your backline staff, but your frontline staff, the, the thing that dominates your uh, your staff meetings, your council meetings, you, you get up in the morning and like, how do we maintain this thing? That is a very different government than what most cities are today. Um, but I think that obsessive maintenance culture is the one we need to move to. Um, I think we're going to talk about incremental investments as part of this because that's, I think, the other part of the strategy. But really, if there's one takeaway beyond stop doing things that are harming you, it's shift your government around, shift your local place around so that you develop an obsession with maintenance as opposed to our current obsession, which is how do we capture outside revenue? You know, Yes. And not just maintenance hyper-focused on the more affluent neighborhoods, the ones that we've just built to perhaps have the most voting power, but more so investments over or um, maintenance over a broad area over a long period of time. And then I think as we, I think it's either chapter seven or eight, I know we're discussing both, but hyper-focused that maintenance on the neighborhoods that are generating the most tax revenue for the city. It makes, it makes total sense. Did you read the thing I wrote on triage? Do you remember that? No, I don't believe so. Okay. Was that, was the, that seven or eight? Yeah, I can't remember. Maybe it, maybe it wasn't in seven or maybe it was in six. <laughs> <laughs> so, so years ago, like early on in Strong Towns, I, I wrote this thing about triage and I shared it with the board at the time, our Strong Towns board, which is not our board today. It's an older one. And they said, you can never publish this. <laughs> like we, we do not want to have this comment. Like you can't do this. And I, I didn't. And, but it's, it's been this thought in the back of my head because like we said earlier, our cities are going to shrink. They're going to have fewer roads, fewer pipes, less concrete and asphalt than they do today. How do you decide where to shrink? And generally what happens is that, like you alluded to, the mayor's buddy gets his street maintained. Uh, the city council member, you know, gets their pipe fixed. Um, but the, the people who are kind of disenfranchised and don't show up to the meetings and have three jobs so they, they can't participate in the day-to-day government the way other people do, they, they can't hire an attorney to go there on their behalf, they're the ones who tend to not be the squeaky wheel and they're the ones who don't get the grease. They're the ones whose neighborhoods fall apart. The fascinating thing, and, and this is really the chapter seven insight now transitioning to chapter eight. The fascinating thing is that when we look at financial productivity, those older, poorer, more rundown neighborhoods tend to be the most financially productive. They, they tend to be the place that when you go out and actually do basic maintenance, you actually get a positive return on that investment. You know, we did this detailed analysis in Lafayette, Louisiana, and what we found there is similar to what we found in other places, but Lafayette, we've got the most amount of data. The neighborhoods that were essentially off limits to us to go to, the ones that the city staff said, don't go walk around there. Don't, don't get an Airbnb in that neighborhood. That's, a, that's where the homicides happen. That's where the burgers, like stay out of there. They were actually profitable for the city. They, they generate more revenue than they, than they have expenses. And they're poorly maintained. I mean, the, the city doesn't go there and pull the weeds. The city doesn't go out there and fill the potholes. They don't go there and fix the, the sidewalks. But if they did, those neighborhoods would even then be the most profitable neighborhoods in the city from just a pure like city business standpoint. The idea that we wouldn't 
shower these neighborhoods with love, that we wouldn't you know, maintain the stuff there obsessively before we get to the, you know, the cul-de-sac out on the edge that's like sucking the city dry. We're just shooting ourselves in the foot financially if we don't do those things. There's a strong alignment, particularly in your part of the country, my part of the country, the, the places where you haven't had a huge amounts of gentrification happen already. There, there's a tremendous alignment between the old neighborhoods, the poorest neighborhoods, the most walkable neighborhoods and financial productivity and basic maintenance is like the key to, to bringing that out and making it a stable place, you know, for now into the future. Chuck, that shower your community with love line reminds me of a recent video that we shared in the Strong Towns Facebook group. I think you'd record this video. You're in your car. I think you just knocked out a presentation in Alabama. But it was shortly after you, I think you gave your neighborhood's first presentation, which I know I want to discuss more here in a little bit. But I think that that closing comment and that call to action for everyone was whenever we do identify that our poor neighborhoods do generate the most tax revenue for local governments, our responsibility as elected officials is to shower them with love. And in the, the Strong Towns group, you know, some people commented that, yeah, like I get that, that totally makes sense. But like there's still, you know, we still have some social issues. We have some absentee landlords. It's still difficult to maybe access healthy food in the neighborhood. But I think it goes back to, you know, this is such a complex system. But what we can do first, and I think that's a theme whenever we talk about investment at Strong Towns, I think what we can do first for these neighborhoods is simply maintain them. So I think for elected officials listening to this podcast, we don't have to apply for any big grants. We don't have to take on any overwhelming projects. There's something great that we can do first, and that's just shower these communities with love, which usually comes through in maintenance. There's going to be other issues. This is not the silver bullet, but it's something that we can do in the meantime to really take some great steps forward. I remember that Decatur, Alabama presentation, and I was reacting to a a question that I got, and I was reacting to it, hopefully not too angrily, but it was very similar to statements that I hear in my hometown, where amongst people who make decisions in the government, amongst just like prominent community members, there's a certain level of disdain and condescension to the people who live in some of these poor, more rundown neighborhoods. They'll look at them and they'll say, well, South Brainerd, uh, the people there don't care about their place. They they lack pride of ownership and pride of place. And so they've let their neighborhood fall apart because essentially they're lesser people than we are. And it's always rubbed me the wrong way, primarily because if you just look at it like from a finance standpoint, like let's leave the human part out. Let's just look at like the hard, cold numbers. It's a, It's a really dumb assertion. If you live in one of the wealthier neighborhoods in town, you're pretty much guaranteed that if the economy goes up, your property values are going to go up next year. Substantial amounts, you know, 5%, 10%, what have you. You're also guaranteed that the city is going to uh, prioritize your neighborhood. So your street will be maintained. It's not going to fall into disrepair and drag your property values down. Your parks are going to be fixed up and mowed. Your streetlights are going to be, you know, when they go out, someone will go out and fix it. Like that, those are the neighbors we prioritize because those are the people who call City Hall when when it's not done. If you go to South Brainerd, on the other hand, this you know traditional old neighborhood, uh, it was an old Finnish neighborhood actually, 
um, but it's where generally the poor people in, in my community live, you could be guaranteed that no one is going to come and maintain your park. Uh, it might get mowed once a month or it might get mowed every now and then, but it's, it's certainly not going to have a, a lot of you know love showered on it. The streetlights go out maybe once a year or twice a year. They'll have a systematic thing where they'll come out and check them and, and change the ones that are bad. But no one's going to run out there like the next day when the light goes out. Your streets are going to be full of potholes. Your sidewalks are going to be cracked. Sure, maybe they'll come by once every 30 years and do an overlay project and assess you the amount. <laughs> you know, But there's no like dedication to doing it routinely. So if you live in one of those poor neighborhoods, the, every signal you get is that nobody cares. Nobody cares. So why would you, in the face of all this, go out and make like heroic investments in improving your own place? Why would you do? You wouldn't. That would be really dumb. That would be when the property values don't go up. Yeah, you're not gonna you're not gonna get the money back if you go out and repaint your house and you know spend your summer uh, landscaping your front yard and you put ten thousand, twenty thousand into it. Your property values are gonna go down next year, regardless of what you do. So if we just look at it from a finance standpoint, forget the human side. What you see is people are acting wholly logically. And if you understand that, then you really have to question your premise about who these people are and what their priorities are. And, and I think start to ask some harder questions about why aren't we maintaining these places? Why, why are we allowing? Why, why as a community are we choosing to you know, renege on our obligations in these places as opposed to in other places? Why, why are we not doing what we said we would do here while we're choosing to do it over here instead. That's, I think, the tough mental leap we need to get over is that, that for my community, South Brainerd is a profitable neighborhood. The city actually makes more money, they bring in more money than they spend maintaining it. If you go to the, you know, the windy cul-de-sac he plays his way out on the edge, it's the exact opposite of that. So if we have to triage, if we have to ask this hard question, what do we keep and what do we let go? Let's make it a dollar and cents question. And if we do that, uh, what we're obviously doing is going out and putting the love, putting the maintenance in obsessively in these neighborhoods that are already profitable. And listeners, if you want to learn more about this, Chuck, you just knocked out a podcast interview with Paul Stewart. Yeah. Uh, the Oswego Renaissance Association. Is that correct? Yeah. And he's very, cool. the, the Oswego uh, Renaissance Association is like the prime example of a place that has embodied this. And I think the fascinating thing about them is that they've had uh, over time more collaboration with the local government, but this is a completely volunteer uh, organization. I mean, this is something, this is not government led. This is all private property owners doing uh, these grants and these, um, this amazing work in these neighborhoods and it's transformative. Yeah, very inspirational podcast to check out, folks. I want to make sure to include that in the show notes as well. Chuck, to, to wrap up, I want to flip to the other side of the coin when we talk about making strong investments. We've done a great job describing why maintenance is essential and to have that maintenance occur in a broad area over a long period of time. The other side is actually the, the small bets that we take in all of these neighborhoods, the, the investments that we make to make them stronger places. Can you tell us a little bit about your take on what investments should look like in neighborhoods? Yeah. I, I was at a 
a CNU Next Gen Summit. It was a little gathering of, of people back in like 2009 or 10 or something like that in New Orleans. And that's the first time I got to meet Mike Leiden. This is like a, I, I'm not sure. I'll say this, even though it's kind of, it's going to sound like a weird story. Um, we were all staying in this big house. It was a house owned by Andres Duani in, in, in New Orleans. And literally we, we just hung out there and all the couches and beds and floors were taken. And Mike and I wound up sleeping next to each other on the hardwood floor in the kitchen. And you know what? It was awesome. Cause we sat up and chatted and I, I really, I really love the guy. Like I really admire him. But he presented at that weekend retreat would ultimately become the tactical urbanism, uh, the workbooks, the, the salons, and then ultimately the, the book that he did. And I have to admit, the first time I saw it, I thought, well, that's kind of cute. Um, but but the, you know, the engineer in me is like, well, that's, that's not very practical. It was this merging then of trying to understand uh, the past, trying to understand how our ancestors would have done this. And, and recognizing that what they were doing in this very conservative evolutionary kind of process that they applied to their habitat is, is they were making incremental investments all the time, all over the place. They were trying little bets to see what worked. And so Mike kind of shows how you do that today. You know, the whole tactical urbanism concept, his book and, and the ideas. And, you know, you can look at the work that the Better Block has done. Monty Anderson down by where you're at and the whole incremental development alliance. These people are recapturing essentially a lost art of how to, how to make small incremental bets. I think the question that I struggled with uh, for a while then was how do we identify what those things should be? We ran into many, many cities that were like, oh, we really love the pop-up block. So let's go out and we'll basically like impose a pop-up block on this neighborhood. And then they'd be bewildered when the neighborhood would show up and say, we don't like it. Or we're going to go up and do the pop-up bike lane because yeah, we love bike lanes and you should love bike lanes too. And they would go out and, and do the pop-up bike lane. And then all these people would show up and protest, including the people that you would think it was going to be the most helpful to. This was a process. I, I can't identify one particular moment, but a lot of it comes from, in a way, a crossover with my Catholic uh, upbringing as well. The idea that you do more listening and more what we at Strong Towns call humble observation than you do kind of imposing your own endpoint on things. And so we started this process here in Brainerd, a couple of friends of mine and I, where we just went out in this one neighborhood that was struggling and we just tried to observe what those struggles were. We didn't go out there thinking, you know, we know what should happen here, or here's where a bike lane should be, or here's where, you know, this house should be redeveloped. We went out and we walked with people. We had them talk about their experience in the neighborhood. We didn't ask them, what would you like to see? Or what do you think should be done? Or what's your vision? We asked them basically, where are you struggling? Like what, what about your day-to-day -day life is hard and difficult? And then we asked ourselves this question. What is the next smallest thing that could be done right now to make that struggle a little bit easier? And what we found, and we pulled out Mike's book, The Tactical Urbanism, we went on the Better Block Foundation page and saw all the wikis of things. They're basically like all these toolboxes to address struggles. And so we just said, well, let, let's take the duct tape and the, the bale of straw and the, uh, 
the the spray paint can we got and let's go out and try to hack and solve to the best we can some of these problems. And what we found then is people start to react to it. And they start to, you know, more people start to come out. People start to do things differently. They start to react to that change. And, and what we recognized very quickly was that what we are witnessing, what we are participating in is the evolution of a complex adaptive system. You make a small change, people start to react differently. Through that, you identify different struggles or more struggles or more urgent struggles. Uh, and you take the next small step to address those and then people react to that. And when we've seen this done iteratively over time in a place, and there's some great examples of this in Memphis, what you see emerge out of that are development patterns that respond to the humans there, but also become financially really productive and successful. I feel like that merging of places that are healthy and strong financially and places that are healthy and strong from a human standpoint is the exact nexus that the strong towns approach is designed to get us to. Yes. And Chuck, this is when I get goosebumps. I mean, honestly, whenever I think about the future of this movement, you know, cause we're up to just over 3000 folks supporting the strong towns movement, beautiful mix of people. We have, elected officials, we have planners, but we also have just great, what we call strong towns, strong citizens. You know, you don't have like that fancy degree in relation to city planning, but you care about your place. You care about its financial resiliency and what, and when you want to do what you can to make your own city, town, and neighborhood stronger. And Chuck, what I've noticed from my work as community builder here at Strong Towns is that all of these strong citizens, despite maybe their lack of formal education and policy and zoning, they are fantastic observers. So whenever these great strong citizens understand why this strong towns approach slash neighbors first approach is effective and how it gets the people in the neighborhood involved, I see that as a fantastic next step for these people who want to take action where they live. And it, it reminds me of one of the more recent It's Little Things podcasts. We had a Sal Galdamez on out of York XL fantastic nonprofit and strong towns local conversation and he was telling me about a program that he and his peers run called street meets so what he and his friends do or colleagues in this organization they visit different neighborhoods they get to know the people that live there what their priorities are and he made that very clear we're not talking about needs we're talking about priorities which i thought was a really really good discernment and he shares the story of you know, we went into one neighborhood. It was me and my buddy. We walked up to this house, waved at the gentleman in the rocking chair, didn't wave back, asked what we were doing. And we're like, it, it, it's okay. Like, well, we'll just keep keep hanging out, say hello, be kind. And uh, I'm thankful that he, he wants some space, but we'll, we'll keep being kind, good people. And he shares the story of, as he kept showing up, kept building trust with these residents. And eventually through a street meet in this particular neighborhood, the same gentleman ended up walking over, asked what everyone was doing, sat down a chair, took a nap, awoke, allowed the kids that were there to draw a rainbow on his arm. And it's just an excellent testament of what happens whenever we come in, not as an authority figure, but simply as a neighbor who cares about your peers and want to, I think of it not so much as, you know, like addressing people's needs, more so like, 
building their capacity to actually take action in their place. Um, but the theme of our podcast is, of course, a lot of people making small bets to make their community stronger. And this movement is, is, is full of them. Um, so listeners, as you ponder more Chuck's message, check out the book, listen to all three of our podcast streams and fantastic articles, lots of great, you know, um, grist for the mill of actions that you can take to make your own place stronger. I think this was the thing that I would have least predicted back when I started writing, because I, I really thought that if anyone was going to read my stuff and if this was going to amount to anything, it would be a thing amongst professionals, maybe, maybe elected officials, maybe appointed officials. The fact that this is a movement largely of non-professionals there's a lot of professionals here and we welcome them in and they're great. They're a great part of our conversation. There's a lot of elected officials and we love having them here and it's wonderful. But I think the prototype strong towns person is just a person who really cares about their place, but has no deep technical training. I find that to be, for me, you, you talk about goosebumps. That's what gives me goose. That's what gives me goosebumps is the recognition that there's a ton of power and capacity out there in people. And if, if we can free up a, a little bit of that uh, to go to work in neighborhoods, making them better places, we will have done a, a huge service for the world. So thank you to all the people who, who have taken that initiative. And this is one of the reasons why I feel like your podcast is the most important of the three in our stream, because you know you week in, week out, give these great examples of really the most inspiring kind of miracle workers out there doing the greatest stuff. And I, I just love it. I love it. And I just, I'm so happy that you're here doing it. Thank you, Chuck. And listeners, if you want to get involved in this conversation, I imagine you already love your place, but maybe just looking for, you know, some existing success stories, some anecdotes, some insights um, to maybe help help guide you for your own investments we have several great platforms you can check out first check out the strong towns community site this is our newest community platform great place to share your own vision for your own unique place and gather insights from other other folks in the movement who have maybe pursued similar initiatives and we got the strong towns facebook group up to about 800 participants in there a good mix of readers and people who support and are members of the strong towns movement we got our Slack. So if this conversation does anything for you beyond maybe checking out the Strong Towns book, um, I hope it also encourages you to get plugged in, into the movement. No matter what your background is, the only prerequisite that we ask for is that um, you care about where you live. And that's it. We'll, we'll, we'll work from there. Thanks, my friend. Beautiful. Chuck, thank you. We're in the middle of the Strong America tour. The book is out. What are you hoping we see over the next few months? What's your, what's your vision? The movement we've created helps sell this book. So the book is opening with a bang. The, the pre-sales were amazing. The initial sales are fantastic. But if we're going to be successful here, the book is going to grow the movement. And so we have some real strong, aggressive goals and metrics for how big our audience will expand, how much our membership will grow, and and really how deep this movement will start to reach into the decision makings in our blocks and neighborhoods all over the country. So we, we needed the movement to, to launch the book because we had to launch the book with a bang in order to get, you know, the type of momentum we needed. 
But now that we've got this momentum, I think this is what we've set ourselves up to do, which is take this and use this book as a vehicle to grow this movement. Huge. That's my hope. My, my hope is we're sitting here at the end of this year going, yeah, that we really capitalized on an opportunity. Beautiful. Well, Chuck, thank you. This has been an absolute joy. Listeners, if you want to learn more about the book, learn more about events coming up, you can check out the book at strongtowns.org slash book, and then keep up with the tour at strongtowns.org slash events. Chuck, thank you. This has been a joy. We'll chat soon. Thanks, man. Take care. Bye. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And if you liked what you heard and are ready to purchase the book, visit any major book retailer and ask for Strong Towns, a bottom-up revolution to rebuild American prosperity. Talk soon. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.